So welcome to another special edition of York Hospital Ball. This week's guest is Steve Ovenden, uh, better known in York City circles as Yorkie the Lion. So Steve, a little bit like James Richardson, contacted me and said, you know, I've got a few stories from uh, from my time at York City. Would you, would you like to hear them? And obviously it fit in with a, a time frame I'm really uh, fond of as well. And um, yeah, I think you'll enjoy listening to, to these stories. And you know, it was really interesting to hear Steve talk about how he, he started from humble beginnings by sending a, a, a chance letter to, to Alan Little to numerous opportunities that followed for Steve. So um, hopefully people will enjoy listening to what, what he uh, has to say. A few kind of hospital ball updates that I'll, I'll mention at the end. Um, but yeah, for now, hope you enjoy listening to Steve Ovenden. So, Steve, thanks so much for coming on and uh, sort of adding to our collection of behind-the-scenes interviews. First and foremost, in terms of supporting York City, you, you started attending in the 1970s, I believe, but you only have a vague sort of recollection of those games. But a decade later, you'll have a much fonder memory, I'd imagine, of sort of the Dennis Smith era. So what was it? What was your sort of best memories of growing up watching York City? I can remember it being really cold the first night I went to Bildum Crescent, but I was really taken by the light, the smell, couldn't tell you who we played and sort of 79 80 i remember it being pretty poor but i got to meet people like jimmy walsh when he was injured ian mcdonald but sort of by the time you're 14 and dennis has arrived that season when i think we just finished eighth maybe and missed out you sense something was happening but nobody could have expected what happened uh the year after they just a series of games my Personal favourite was we were 2-0 down at half-time to Wrexham and you just knew we were going to win. And that sounds ridiculous now, even at, at my age. But you just knew we were going to win. And the team was just awesome. You could meet them outside. There was a connection. And there was people like Sheila Smith and the Junior Reds had started. So the club just felt to a 14-year-old alive really. And so that whole season was magical. And then, of course, you're hooked and you think it's going to happen every week, don't you? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it did happen every week, didn't it? In the, in the 82, 83, 83, 84 sort of seasons, didn't it? It's sort of, um, like you say, there, expecting to win all the time. Who would have been your sort of hero growing up and who were you sort of emulating on the playground and stuff when you were at school? Um, well, everybody wanted to be Keith Walwood, didn't they? And John Byrne, I wouldn't have said I, I had any that I, I. It was just a whole team of, of legends, really. But he's the iconic figure, just a lovely man. Me and a, me and a friend followed him around town, before a cup tie. I can't even remember who we were playing. There was a he was an injury doubt, I think, and we were quite young, and we we followed him around town, and then looked up courage to ask whether or not he'd be fit, and he, he said he would, and they were all just great people you know so as I said Keith really of that of that era certainly so obviously the 80s were, were, were fantastic you'll have loved the, the start of the 90s as well with the, the Wembley 93 team and, and all that and I mean, a, a 1-0 defeat to Reading in November 1998 won't live long in the memory I wouldn't, wouldn't imagine to, for, for many York City <laughs> fans but for you seeing a bloke dressed as a dog Entertaining the crowd at half time, sort of sow the seed. So tell, tell us about your recollection of that. Well, it's all very, very clear in my mind. So it was a year when I decided that I was going to do every game home and away. You know, people, these magical fans of Yorks, there's a lot of people do it every year, but I, I thought I was going to do it. And so I embarked on that journey, but the football wasn't great. It was a really odd year. And so that night at Reading, it was particularly poor and we were losing. And I went with people and I had a drink and I, I was just sat there moaning about my lot. You know, it's a long way to go for a midweek game, you're losing. And I was just transfixed by this dog. So the conversation in the car home wasn't really about the performance. It was more about this this bloke dressed as a dog. And as people do, bands went on in the car and somebody said, well, if you think you can do a better job, if you think you could do it, ring the club. And then I decided to ring, uh, not to ring the club, but I wrote to... Alan Little. It was more um, more of a joke, really. I've, I've got the letter to hand, actually. I've got a copy of it. 6th of November, 1998. Dear Alan, ship or the lion. 
And I just wrote a letter su suggesting that um, the performance of the above, i.e. Shippo, gives cause of a concern. You want him put down, basically? Yeah. <laughs> so I put my, put my name, sent a letter, and really all we wanted, the group of fans, was a reply from the club on headed note paper back in the day before email. And um, I got no answer. So a week or so later, the 19th of November, I, uh, I wrote again and uh, suggested that whilst my letter had been tongue-in-cheek, performances still had not improved and he should consider appointing me. So it, it, it kind of got left. And um, a few weeks later, James Richardson says, he didn't really know me that well, I should point out. And he says, have you been writing to the club? So I said, yeah, I have, yeah. And it kind of went backwards and forwards. He said, well, we're thinking about changing Shippo because it's a cumbersome costume. Would you be interested? I tell my friends and they're going, yeah, of course, tell them you'll be interested. And this conversation went sort of three ways, really. Telling my friends that the club are interested. And telling, and, and then James said, well, you're going to have to come in for a chat. So I went in for a chat with him and Maureen Leslie. And it was like an interview. And I'm, you know, just... It's, it's so bizarre. I didn't know what I was going to say. I think I ended up saying that I was a massive fan of it. It's a knockout and the costumes. Uh, and it went on for about 20 minutes. And Maureen Leslie, who was this fantastic saleswoman, fantastic commercial lady, just shook her head. And and at the end, she held out her hand and said, well, I think you're a, you're a little bit mad, but the job's yours if you want it. So it, it kind of ended up where they then said, well, the Yorkie costume will have to be made to measure. We're going to have something that's really easy. So they're going to measure it for you. And then you've kind of committed to doing this. So it, it went on. And then this costume arrived before the last home game of the season. And I remember going out in a costume that was put together with pins and needles. We lost, I think. And then went to Man City the following week and obviously we were relegated. But I'd had a taste of dressing up and messing around. And so I felt I'd have to see it through the following season. And what, the... Just rewinding slightly, Steve. So, so going back to the interview, what, what, do you, what do you wear for an interview when you're going, <laughs> going to be a, a mascot, which I presume well, is sort of like, what, what, do you know what I mean? What, what do you do? And, and, and you'd had quite a lot of setbacks. What, what made you sort of persist in, in with this idea? It was just, well, it, it was an ongoing joke. So I'm saying to my friends who I travel to the games with, well, what do you do? Do you go in a suit and tie? Or do you go what you'd normally wear to a match but look smart, casual? Or I said, do you go and, like, hire a fancy dress costume? Um, yeah, first so, pair on. Yeah, so as a collective, I think we, we agreed that I would just go in, in sports casual, really. Um, and I think I probably told James and... Um, because James Richard was in the interview. I think I told James and Maureen this thought process, and one of them probably suggested that I, should, I might have brought the fancy dress outfit to the interview, but it was just insane, really, is the only way of, of describing it. But then to get the job, again, you're thinking, well, you can't let them down. It, it's your club, and you, you've, you've said this, so you've got to see it through. Did, and you, then did you have any ideas of what, of what that was going to involve, then, or, or was it just... I just want to get offered the job sort of thing and then I'll deal with that sort of thing later on. Or did you have some ideas in your head of what what you what, what persona you wanted to sort of give and and where, where did where did the idea of Yorkie actually come from? Was it uh did they have the idea that they wanted to change the mascot to Yorkie or was that, that kind of your thinking as well? No, they'd they'd had an idea clearly while I was writing slightly sarcastic letters, I suppose, they'd had an idea that they wanted to change it and thankfully Back in the day, you know, Nestle could sponsor at a local level. And so Nestle, in fact, paid for this costume to be made, the head, to, the padding, and, and hence the name Yorkie. So they'd had the thought. I had been quite amused by the dog. You've seen maybe Ronnie the Rhino that leads rugby. And it was just, I think it was more, if the team were doing poorly, you, you could find humour uh, in something else. Uh, and I just wanted to appear as this lion that was supremely confident in everything his football team did. So I marched out with 
puffed my chest out, ran out, uh, and was trying to exude confidence and trying to get the crowd to sing. That's how it evolved, really. And you become emboldened once the crowd start laughing at you. And the beauty of it was as well, there was only about four of my friends knew it was me for two or three months that second season. James and Maureen obviously knew. But I used to go into the club shop. Nobody nobody knew it was me that emerged in this costume. And we kept it a secret for a while. And I'd be hearing people saying, oh, the, the mascot's quite funny. You know, where's this, where's this come from, you know? Uh, so that was all a little bit weird, really. And what, what were you doing for employment at this time? Like, is, is your day-to-day job? <laughs> day job, I was... Um, it's called an assistant prosecutor working with the Crown Prosecution Service, civil service. So ultimately, people think they're a little bit grey and a little bit boring. And then I was doing that through the week and then on a Saturday going and misbehaving on football pitches. And were people sort of in the office sort of saying, you know, what are you up to this weekend? Or, you know, I'm off out for a nice meal with my friends, weren't you? So, yeah, I'm off to dress up as a, as a, <laughs> as a lion. Yeah, um, it was interesting, the... The then DPP, David Calvert-Smith, came on, came on a visit to our offices and it was him that said, it's fantastic, we've, we've heard from the grapevine that this is what you do and it's well received. We think it's fantastic because civil servants are obviously thought of as grey and dull. So no, it was quite well received at work when the cat was out of the bag. Good pun. Um... <laughs> And that, that, that I, I probably should have asked this earlier, but, but the dog at Reading, what, what was it that, that he did? Was he sort of cocking his leg against the goalpost or something? What, what was it that was so transfixed? Why were you so transfixed by this dog at Reading? I, I just don't know. I, 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 don't, I genuinely don't know whether it did take me back maybe to it's a knockout in my childhood. You know, when you see a dog running about and getting involved in a halftime penalty shootout with fans, it's kind of bizarre, and it it gone on at clubs, but I don't know why why it was Royal the dog, as it turns out, that that created that impression. I wonder whether it was because the, the you know City weren't doing so much on the pitch at, at that time. Just don't know, but um, it led me down this path that was just brilliant, really. And how much could you actually see what was going on with the like costume, and how difficult was it to? You know, were you ever worried that the head was going to fall off, or could, how well could you see the game that was happening in front of you? Uh, the view wasn't brilliant. It's like looking through a, a grill or a mesh fence is about as 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 good as the view is. The head was very very secure in place back in the day because, without giving you trade secrets, really, there was a cycling helmet attached to the top of it and a strap that so was never going to fall off. So although it bounced around a little, it was never going to come off. So um, the view wasn't great. It's a very hot and sweaty role to be involved in, certainly when you're trying to climb on the... You know, back in the day, I don't really remember, I was able to climb on the fence. I was able to stand on a chair that was just behind the net and get on my feet and, and try and whip the crowd up, you know? So it, it was a very warm existence on a Saturday afternoon. You were glad at 10 to 5 when you could get out of it, you know? And how hard was it being an entertainer? Like you say, because on the pitch around that period, it wasn't great, was it? And the club could quite easily be 2-0 down after 20 minutes. How how did you sort of navigate those sort of situations where the onus was on you really to kind of get the fans to stop being sort of toxic and, and, and enjoy their day out? I mean, it had been difficult because really the second season, I mean, in terms of managing, yeah, I'd applied to Alan and I never got to meet Alan really as, as Yorkie. Well, not at all. Because by the time it was ready, he had gone and Neil Thompson had taken over. So it was a fairly desperate season, that first season with Neil Thompson. You could do things, mess about with opposing players in the warm-up or when they came out after half-time. You, I don't know if you remember, was it, we had a big ball, super-sized football, and I used to always leave it on the edge of the penalty box and go in goal and try and get the away goalkeeper to, to kick it. More often than not, um, they would play along with it. I always remember Roger Freestone from Swansea. Every time he came, he always had a go. And obviously, it's a big ball. They're not expecting the weight of it. More often than not, I either saved it or they missed it. So 
it was really easy to take the mickey and you know the crowd were sort of lapping that up really and had a good relationship with our own players who I used to mimic I was warming up and then he could come on and mess on in the warm up you know so essentially thought I was a professional footballer dressed as a, a mascot <laughs> I mean, there's one game in particular that I think people remember quite fondly against Halifax. You know, I think yeah. it was 2000, wasn't it? And it was a bit of Yorkie Kemp, a bit of folklore, really, for York fans. And sort of a bit of a battle of Boom and Crescent, wasn't it? I think they had a few players sent off, and one one player, yeah. Graham Mitchell, <laughs> came face to face with you. What, what's your memories of that? Well, talk us through the, the story about how that happened. Well, they're in danger of being relegated, I think. And we're one nil up, and we—it's a warm day, you know. It's maybe April, I think. And um, I used to have drinks bottles, and I only ever used to spray our supporters, and they would laugh at that, you know, and just a bit of banter, really. Anyway, we we went two nil up, and I don't know whether some of their players—it was a scramble—and they ended up in the net. And I I turned and squirted this water across at the crowd in in celebration. And I think probably some of it's hit him or some of the other Halifax players in the net. And I don't give it any more thought. The kickoff game ends 2-0. And I'm facing David Longhurst. I'm waving to people as I did and shaking kids' hands as they're leaving. And all I can remember is somebody going, he's behind you. <laughs> and what I've said about it's a knockout, it was almost a pantomime moment. He's behind you, you better turn around. And I turn around. And I'm confronted by him. And he started shouting and swearing and saying, if I ever did it to him again, and da-da-da-da. And then he, he pushes me back onto the uh, fence and was pulled away by his players. And I'm a little bit shocked, but I said, oh, you want to grow up? <laughs> Which was kind of apt for a 31-year-old bloke. <laughs> He's a lion. Very suit. You know, perhaps I needed to grow up. But I just said, you need to grow up. And I think that's the end of it make my way to the club shop, I'm getting undressed. And then Keith Usher appeared quite agitated in the back of the shop and he's saying, you've, you've got to come and see the referee, you've got to come and see the referee. And I'm saying, what are you on about? So I followed him down to the referee's room and uh, the referee said that a complaint had been made by, by Graham Mitchell. And uh, he said that you've, uh, you've cocked your leg and you've urinated, which... <laughs> I knew I'd not done that because the the way the costume was made, it just it was a physical impossibility. Um, so I explained all this to the referee, and it turned out that the referee was being assessed by a football league referee's assessor, and he said, "I cannot not put this in the match report. It's an incident that's been seen by everybody." So it was going on report, and that's why it had to be investigated. I don't think any more of this. And then Monday morning, it was all over the press, and it made some of the national papers that. Yorkie had been involved in a fracas. And so the press are ringing me up, asking me to do an interview, and just silly, really. Uh, should have just been forgotten. But the postscript to that story is some of the people that I was friends with who'd been along the getting the job sent in the in the uh, post-season, sent Yorkie bars to Halifax Town Football Club in the post, addressed to Graham Mitchell. And... Uh, Obviously, we don't know whether he ever opened them. But the following season, when they came uh, to Wilbham Crescent, he wouldn't shake my hand at, uh, at kick-off. He just simply turned his back on me. So I don't know whether he received the Yorkies in the post or he wasn't that impressed. But, um, yeah, it was quite an interesting uh, incident to end up being in the referee's room. So like a Wayne Bridge, John Terry moment then. He, he wouldn't, just wouldn't yeah. shake just yeah, just wouldn't shake and just simply refused, which I thought was a little bit pathetic. Really, it was it was a bit of water at the end of the day. Yeah, um, it wasn't in your notes, but um, I vaguely remember reading Peter Swan's autobiography many years ago, and, and him saying that the club shorts were too tight for him, and yeah. he had to borrow Yorkie shorts for the Man United friendly. Is that is that something I've no? That's that, that memory, that's that true. That's very true. I mean, Swanee was a larger-than-life character, and this is in the the Terry Dolan period. He comes in, and we play Man United in a friendly, and the new, that white kit had arrived, I think. And um, I'm messing about. We'd, we'd invited other mascots from various clubs because Beckham's in town. Everybody's in town. It's a brilliant thing. And then uh, Swanee runs over, and he's like, Yorkie, Yorkie, give us your shorts. That's <laughs> it. 
you what? Because I've obviously got a problem with the only XXL pair. I said, and I probably told him to bugger off, don't be ridiculous. He said, no, I'm going to have to wear your shorts. There's all we've only got, medium. Um, anyway, he didn't have to get the shorts in the end. The kit man found some. Because if he'd had to wear my shorts, there was a tail attached. So, <laughs> so he, he could have ended up, you know, defending against Beckham and Keane with a pair of white shorts with a big brown tail stitched out of the back. But it, it thankfully didn't come to that. He got some. I, I guess in that situation, um, you're able to get really close to Man United's players, aren't you? Than other York fans wouldn't have been able to on the day. Did did you try and sort of engage with some of their players and? I did, actually, and it's only when we were thinking about um, this conversation that I was looking back to some photographs and the like, and obviously I used to shake hands with, used to take the child mascot with me, shake hands with the officials. And so there's, the, there's a picture of Swanee was the captain, me, a child, and Roy Keane. And I remember shaking Roy Keane's hand quite firmly. Uh, nothing was said, but... Um, I always used to find that quite funny, really, because I'm clearly not a sportsman, and yet there you are shaking hands with quite famous people. Odd. I just love the fact that Graham Mitchell wouldn't shake your hand, but Roy Keane would. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. Way around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whilst it's great fun um, being a club mascot, there was actually some great opportunities for you, weren't there? I mean, such as filming FA Cup adverts at. Wembley Stadium again, you know, getting on the pitch and stuff like that, stuff that, that a regular York City fan just won't be able to do, would they? Yeah, I mean, when this whole thing started, you do not envisage you're going to be doing that type of thing. So, like, the Axer ads came along probably a year in, within a year, paid to go first class on a train to Wembley, the old Wembley, get dressed in the Royal Box, go and go in goal, face a penalty, take a penalty, obviously score. So that's fantastic. I mean, how I start scored, I just don't know because you can't really see your own feet. So you have to take a penalty by going back four paces measured and then running up and hope you hit the ball. But anyway, it goes in and then we filmed scenes in the bath as though we'd just won. We uh, did all that sort of stuff, you know, around and just magical, absolutely magical. Then we went to Anton Deck's Saturday night takeaway and several of the mascots went and filmed there. And so you catapulted into this strange environment where you're meeting other like mind. And what I will say about all the other mascots is they're all incredible fans of their clubs. So you're meeting people that are very much the same mould as you. Brilliant, the opportunities it gives you. I then got an international call up of all things. Well, I was going to come on. This is my next question. Yeah, I was going to. This is, I presume, you're talking about the England under 21s where they requested your services because they needed three lions, but they got two lions and a monkey. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The uh, Borough, Borough had a lion, Rory. Obviously, it was Yorkie, and yeah, they couldn't find another one at the time. So uh, we pitched up with Haggis uh, the monkey from Hartlepool for the England under 21 just trying to think who they were playing. I certainly wasn't 21 by that point, because I should add, by the time I'm doing this uh, in 1999, I'm a 30-year-old man. 2001, September of that year, so I'm 32 and certainly not under 21. But, you know, that was, that was a marvellous thing to be involved in. And then as luck would have it, because Nestle also produced the Lion Bar, they sponsored... Great Britain Rugby League. And so they said, will you come and do Yorkie, but with Lion Bar on your shirt at the um, Great Britain versus Australia Rugby League test matches? You know, there you are, catapulted into playing in front of 25,000 people. I'm stealing a ball off a bloke dressed as a kangaroo and running the length of the field and putting it down under the posts. It's just, just fabulous, fabulous opportunities, Dan, is, is what I'd say it, it's it given me. You mentioned in your notes that Terry Dolan was really big on on team spirit, and some fans, including including myself, to be honest, as a, as a young lad looking back, used to think he was a little bit dour. And I, and I think it's sort of time and and me sort of interviewing quite a lot of people for the podcast has made me see Terry in a completely different light. And natural fact, he he, 
he did a really good job, I think, against the sort of elements, as it were. And then I, I sort of thought, well, I don't know why I'm surprised, really, because the word I like to Peter Swan, weren't there, and John Parkin and people like that, they were quite big characters back then. So what was it that Terry did that that, that made, made you think the team spirit was so good? I've thought about a lot, a lot about this lately. And I have to say, well, the managers that of York when I was York in the Lion, Terry achieved the most. Now, that may sound odd to some people because it wasn't always pretty. But the last game of his reign, we played Oxford and I think we finished eighth. Just missed out on the playoffs on goal difference, I think. And in reality, that's as good as it's been for 20 years. We've, we've never got as high as eighth or we, we possibly did with Worthington. But so he, in some respects, was, was one of the better managers in the club and he's the perception is he wasn't he was fantastic and I take this back to listening to your great podcast any time that club has been successful so 83 there were people like Sheila Smith involved it was brilliant the club had supporters with skills who worked at the club 92 93 the Man United era James Richardson Maureen Leslie you know, there have been Tom Hughes, secretary, Keith Usher. The, the club's always had fantastic people there. And it did really when Terry was there. You know, I think James was still, James had maybe been promoted to commercial manager. There were still good people around and it was, it, it, it built into, you know, everybody gets involved in what's going on. Famously, we beat Grimsby in the cup, I think. And that was the start of a night when, you know, it, it was a different era. Players were able to go out for a drink. So they went out to celebrate. And Terry gave me, James Richardson, and some of the players, two players, a lift into town and we'd get dropped off by a nightclub on a Tuesday night. And he's, and he's going, oh, you don't want to listen to all that rubbish music you're going to. And he's got States Corn in his car. And we're bouncing, you know, the, your team's just beating Grimsby in the cup. We're absolutely bouncing. And for me and James, the manager's given us a lift into town and we've been singing in the game. It was, it was magical. And there were nights, other nights when the team had won, when maybe Sophie had ended up in the car with Terry. And there was a real bond built up, you know. And that was to do with Terry, the people who were in were involved. Not many people will know, but I, I used to walk Graham Potter's dog on two or three occasions. I'm not friends with him anymore. And, well, I, I lost contact with him, so I don't have his mobile number. I'm not going to ask him to come to York, obviously. But, you know, when there were long-distance away games and his girlfriend then or wife was away, it was like, oh, I don't suppose you'd give us... Are you not going to game, Yorkie? Uh, no. don't suppose you'd walk my dog, would you? So I take his dog onto the nearest mine and it's splashing about and it's soaking and wet in puddles and stuff like that happened. You know, everybody felt connected and you'd do stuff together. Swanee would leave, would lead some nights out in nightclubs, or you know, everybody was really they were just in it together, and I think Terry instilled that in people. Mm. So for me, he's probably one of the, if not the best manager during my time as Yorkie, which might seem odd to people, really. Well, yeah, I mean, that last season, you're right. And I think, to be honest, York might have even made the playoffs that year had it not been for the financial stuff. And we ended up losing players as we went along, didn't we? So, like, Alan Fettis left, didn't he? Could just walk yeah. out on his contract because of the, the financial situation and stuff. So, Terry, and to do all that with those financial constraints, I think Terry did did a really good job. And, and I'm hoping at some point, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get him on and have a good chat with him on the podcast. But... You mentioned about sort of being close to the players. Chris Brass was your best man at your wedding, wasn't he? I mean, how did that sort of friendship come about? So I met my wife, Kirsten, in those times of trouble uh, to begin with, when I think Douglas had made the decision to do what he'd done with BHA, BCH. And then when that lunatic bachelor arrived, the trust was formed. That's when I met Kirsten. And... Chris was playing at York. I think he was the captain at that point. Um, and he was absolutely fantastic. Another fantastic man who had lots of ability. He'd come from Burnley, believed he was going to take off at York, I think. So he's a great guy. 
And he was another one that embraced me as Yorkie and liked that I tried to bring the crowd along, you know, and get the crowd behind what was deemed to be a dour or a struggling team. So I soon became friends with him. Then, obviously, when Terry was placed on gardening leave, which wasn't great, in in hindsight, it was a very bad decision by the then trust-run board, in my opinion. So he's on to gardening leave. And then the next thing, Brass is saying, they've offered me the job. And I said, what? And he said, well, they want me to be the manager. In hindsight, was it a good move? Clearly not. At 27, it didn't work out. There's all sorts. It's probably right that other people tell the, the story of what went on. Brass is perceived as a failure, as a, a manager, and undoubtedly results he was, but there was quite a lot of stuff going on in the background. You know, the sale of Lee Bullock. So I was very, very close to him. And because I'd met my wife through through that time, he had then been sacked by the time we came to get married. And I thought he was the best man. And that's why I asked him to be the best man, because he was a good friend, do all sorts for you. And it was just a way of saying to him, look, I know what's gone on has gone on, but I think I still think you're a, a good man. And so he came and he was he was my best man when, when we got married. Uh, yeah, another one just treated appallingly, really, in hindsight. Yeah, there was lots going on. It's, it's probably not right that I say what my take on it was, but I'll always back Chris Brass, really. It just wasn't the right time. You mentioned earlier it, it was, you know, a tough sort of era that you, that you were kind of sort of part of. And obviously we, we mentioned there about Terry and the financial stuff that was going on, John Batchelor. You were a big part of that sort of Save City campaign, weren't you? What, what, what's your sort of abiding memories of that, that period in the club's history and, and the sort of stuff that you did? Well, the, the really weird thing is I wished it had not happened, but the sense of achievement for what several people did, great groups of people, you know, your Paul Ronsleys, your Steve Beck, your Sophie McGill, the list of people is endless. Mine and Kirsten's role was more, so we put on the fans match, got the fans to bid to play, Gave them a fantastic experience as a professional footballer. We took them on the coach, pre-match meal, £13,000 raised. The funny thing was with that, I got Chris Brash to manage one of the teams and I got Alan Little to manage the other. So although I'd applied to Alan for the job, I'd never met him as Yorkie and it was wonderful to see him and to sit on the coach with John Dodsworth, took the players around the city and I got a really chance to speak with him and you know Alan was every bit as a good man as I thought he was uh, and I think that's shown in your podcast with him he's just a good man we came down Bootham Crescent with the players on the bus and we saw James Abraham at the top of Bootham Crescent and it'd be the easiest thing in the world to drive past and Alan Little said stop and pick him up and John Dodsworth sets, pulled the bus up. James, come on. He was about 300 yards on the team bus, but it made his day. And this is what I say about good times around that football club. There's been good people with with good hearts, you know? The other things we did, we did the auction. I'd been at school. I was a little bit older than Rick Witter, so I talked him into the benefit concert. You know, and the fans, the fans raised half a million pounds, £600,000. We all did our bit, but we met fabulous people along the way. I will defend Mike Brown, you know, at the moment, there's all sorts of stuff, but a good man who's given many years of his time to York City. So if things have not worked out and, and Mike's been blamed, don't forget when others sat back, he put himself there and did it, you know? So for me... It was great to be involved in raising all that money and the formation of the trust and, and meeting a woman who would ultimately become my wife and give me two beautiful children who have also been dragged into this York City family. So I've got a lot out of it, personally, even though you'd think that was that was a bad time. Uh, it was actually quite good. 
sort of galvanized people, didn't it, and brought people closer together. You, you oh. mentioned um, Billy McEwen came in and wasn't quite your cup of tea. And, and to be honest, that wasn't a surprise because he, he was quite a Marmite character, wasn't he, Billy? I think people did either like him or, or love him. You know, there, there wasn't much in the middle with him. Yeah, and I don't know, you know, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. He came in and he he really wasn't, a, he was a no-nonsense guy. So he probably didn't like the whole mascot making fun. To him, it probably wasn't serious enough. You know, he came in and he, he did make things smarter and he made us more resilient. But let's not forget, he never got us out of the conference, did he? You know, Chris was blamed for us dropping out of the league. But Billy never got us back in. And Billy was not great with, with Chris Brass, really. And again, that's maybe a story that you'd have to get off Chris. He was treated appallingly. You know, he was sacked as a manager, but still had a playing contract. He wanted to leave. Uh, well, Billy wanted him to leave. Chris wanted to be to be gone because he didn't want to be a shadow over Billy's team. Then Chris did his Achilles. The, the, the stuff went on. It was just appalling. And I don't know whether I was tainted against against Billy because of what I was saying from Chris. You know, like. We lived two streets away from the ground. Chris doing his rehab was told to go and train with kids and go and ride a bike. And so he would sometimes call it in our house and have a cup of tea, you know. Uh, I just didn't think he was probably a, a good guy, Billy, but that was maybe unfair. I guess, you know, your close friendship with, with Chris as well would make you obviously side, side sort of closer to him as well, wouldn't you? But, you know, maybe, maybe Billy was given direction to try and get Chris off the wage bill or, you know, there's probably two sides, isn't there, to everything? I'm, I'm, I'm sure there was. But his no-nonsense approach towards me, coupled with it, it kind of drew me to the door, really. It, there were other things as to why it came to an end. I mean, I'd had six, seven seasons of really good fun. And then, funny enough, when we dropped into the conference... There, and there was the famous quotes about being the arsenal of the conference. The national conference took themselves really seriously and they were saying, we are the Premier League of non-league football. So I was being told that I could stand on the fence. That was perfectly acceptable in the Football League. I was then told I couldn't throw sweets into the crowd. I mean, I, I'm not throwing them like a dart or a javelin. I'm underarming bars of chocolate to children who were about four feet away on the other side of a fence. And so they just there were all these restrictions imposed. I mean, I used to get this free chocolate from Nestle via James Richardson and some sponsors that we knew. And when they start saying you can't interact with the fans, it just kind of lost its magic. And of course, by that point, I'd got two beautiful daughters in my life. Molly had arrived in 2004, Isabel 2007. And so it, it it was just a natural parting of the waves, I guess. So, so, so you hung up the pause, but, but sort of passed it on to uh, Alex Beddington, didn't you? Yeah. Who, who sort of, I think he was the one who, who rode the, the bike full pelt yeah. down the touchdown, wasn't it? Were you kind of like a proud father then, watching stuff like that go on when he was uh, taking up the reins? Yeah, funny, funny enough, we covered each other a lot of the time. He did 10 years, I think, in the end. And he would do it if I wanted a Saturday off and, you know, we'd pick and choose games. But, yeah, um, seeing the stunts he pulled from the crowd, uh, from my position in the crowd, was really, really good. And what was fantastic was I'd left and Alex was getting married and the original Yorkie costume had been left in a bin. I mean, this, this again uh, says to me about the way the club had gone. It had been put in a bin. It was going to be thrown away. And they'd got the new Yorkie costume. Somebody at the club, I think it was Phil Howden, said, oh, look, it's it, it's, in a, it's going to go in a skip if you're not careful. And Alex was getting married, so he asked if he could use the kit. So then Alex said to me, will you come as Yorkie to my wedding? So I picked you up at Old Walk Manor Hotel, and uh, we had a dance together and I had a dance with his wife and a lot of, you know, and that's how the, the, the costume didn't end up in, in a skip and been lost forever. 
and and now I'm the proud owner of it. I mean, Maureen always said it was made for me. And to be fair to Douglas Craig, he said, that suit is yours. So I don't feel bad about having it. It was made for me. And they said I could have it after it was finished. But if I'd not recovered it in that manner, it's a part of history that had just been lost. It, it was literally in a skip, ready, ready to go out, which was, was sad, really, you know? Yeah. And maybe you said something about, you know, you mentioned earlier about good people working at the club at the time and maybe you know losing that that kind of that awareness really that uh, how that how much that would have meant to someone you know i was angry rather than upset and just delighted to to have it you know um it, and there's a lot of bits you know like when we're moving out of Burton crescent and a lot of items were still but some bits that probably should have been kept and could have i, I don't know once you lose Items like that, not necessarily a furry costume, but you know, let's let's have some pride in our heritage. Really, mm. is where I'm at with that. You weren't meaning the uh, the wall that people used to pee against, anyway. And that that clearly had to go. That, that could that go. <laughs> but you know, there's like there were, there were pictures of '92, '93 Wembley that were. I went on one of the last occasions, and they were like lovely pictures and. Oh, you can't keep everything, but we could have maybe had a museum. Nobody thought that they were just selling stuff for ten quid. That was 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 part history, you know. Yeah, uh, fire fire sales off. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't know because you know it's a it's a great club. So that it it and it will hopefully get resolved and get on on the on the path back to to somewhere like it should be probably. In the football league, all I can say is I, you know, mates with Fetis, still speak today to Parky quite a bit, even though he's out of the game. My, my time coincided with some larger, you know, people said that I was a larger than life character as Yorkie, but there were some big people in that in that club, and I take it back to my childhood. There's there's been big characters and strong men there and women. And and you, you mentioned there about it being a great club. What 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 do you make of of York City now? Because I, I look at the sort of situation with Glenn Henderson and, and see a lot of parallels to John Batchelor. Not 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 in every aspect, but but there are some that, that you sort of think, you know, about that what's happening now, I, I do think we'll look back back on in ten years and think, wow, that was crazy. <laughs> do you know what I mean some some of the things that, that are happening? What what's your take? Do you do you uh, are, you, are you feeling the same? I don't know where I'm at with that. I mean, we were all fooled by Bachelor, myself included. You know, I mean, he, I remember when he turned up and we got those uh, silly shirts and we went to the start of the season and he turned up with all these cars and these young girls dressed up. We're having pictures taken with girls draped across cars and I've got some horrendous photographs in my in my personal collection from that time but it soon became apparent all wasn't well and I just don't know about Glenn Henderson just don't know at all really it's not good is it I mean they're just the manner of the sacking of John Askey whether or not he needed to go and and all I'll say is my friends in football all make contact with me and go What's going on, Steve? You, you know, the likes of... So, Fetz is at Middlesbrough. He's the first-team goalkeeping coach. Um, Brassie's at Forest. They're, they're all doing all right for themselves. So, they clearly were good football people, despite what happened. And they'll say to me, what on earth's going on? You don't sack people, like, like in that manner, even whether you think they need to go. So, there's, I've got some quite serious concerns about it. I would hope that I don't have to come out and do it all again because I don't know whether there would be the interest to do it a second time round. I mean, we're 20 years on, Dan, as you know. But I think we had a great opportunity as a fan-involved club. And having seen the way it's now going, I think that will tarnish the memory of what was done in 2002, 2003, and my view is that might make people reluctant to put money into the trust again. 
as I, you know, yeah, I've explained my view on, on Max Brown. Um, good and bad, but he's a, ultimately a good man who cares. Same with Alistair. It, it needs somehow for people to come together and to bring that spirit that you encapsulated so well about Dennis. I mean, Dennis Smith, what, what a wonderful time that was. Everybody was there. And we've got to get back to that because if we're not all pulling in the same direction with the right people in the club, it's we're not going to get back in the football league, are we? Yeah, probably... I think that the fact that you make a great point there about pulling in the same direction because I think that was the problem with Jason in the end that that it didn't it felt like a disconnected club for some time. You know, certainly in his latter years, you know, I think I think there was times where things were going well. You know, when when him and his dad and 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 his sister Sophie, you know, and the fan base, they're all kind of as one. Okay, we dropped out the football league, but then there was a bit of a, a kind of connection, wasn't there? Coming back and. And and the and the club was feeling like it was it was on the way up, but once once Jason sort of I think lost a little bit of interest, it, it did feel like a disconnect. And again, at the minute, it doesn't feel like you know you've got the supporters trust in one direction, you've got Glenn in another, you've got the fan base in another, you've got you know the John Aspie situation. It all all doesn't it doesn't feel rosy in the gardens. And I wondered whether from you who was it was someone who was heavily involved with the Save City stuff the first time around, whether when you hear stuff like Glenn wasn't prepared to pay the wages one of the months and the supporters just had to fill the gap, whether you sort of think, God, are we going to go through that again? Is that, Do you think like that when you hear stuff? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I met Glenn Henderson because quite early on, there were various issues with the commercial department, to be unfair to outline, but I'd, I'd sponsored back in 2012 and, funnily enough, never received a call at the end of the season to say whether or not I wanted to renew. I rang two or three times and no one rang me back. So I left it. And so when I met Glenn, I was saying, you know, the commercial department needs to be quite savvy. Mm. It, it, I hope it's not going to be like it was 10 years ago. And I, I wasn't I wasn't sure about him. Yeah, and so I'm, I'd met Glenn. I'd met Glenn um, to talk about some of the areas where I thought improvement could be made in the commercial team. And I thought he was okay, but then came that car crash interview. Then came the sacking that's just not been done particularly well. And then when I'm saying that people in football are talking about the sacking, when people in football know that the trust had to pay the wages, who's going to want to loan your players? Football people look after football people. And it it's just not. It's not great, really. I don't know what's going on. No idea. Uh, I I struggle to see how we could do it again. Uh, and there, listen, there are fabulous people out there, such as yourself, such as um, Dan Simonite, who was at the club. They've been good people at the club, and people would come and help. But, you know, the current financial crime, it's not great either. So the club needs to turn itself round. And to do that, they need key people in in key areas, in my opinion, and it would help if they were supporters of the club with skills. If that makes sense. Let's not end the interview on a, on a note talking about the, uh, the, no. the uncertainty of the club at the minute. But bring it back to sort of being doing doing the role of Yorkie. You know, did you when you look back and think, God, I you know I saw a dog dog performing at half time in a one nil defeat to Reading. A few years later, you, you you know representing England. You you've gone to Wembley. You you're singing status quo in Terry Dolan's car. What if if you could sort of pick one moment that you'd love to go back to and and sort of think, I wish I could relive that again. What 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 moment would it be? Do you know what? I don't think there's been a better time to have been Yorkie than to walk from York Minster with a saved City banner and to be obviously at the front of that because I was the mascot. I was only there because I was the mascot. But we had help, you know, that banner had said, save City. But the day we walked back from the Minster to Bootham Crescent with a D added to it with black paint, I think that's probably the highlight of everything because everybody was involved in that, all the supporter base. The players were delighted that it happened because it meant they got paid. That was, you know, and I was walking with the lady who would become my wife. So I suppose it's saved, saved city would, would, would be up there. 
that would be the one. Well, Steve, it's been absolutely great to speak to you. I think I think some of your stories there are, are, are funny. Some of them have been emotional. I think um, I think it's, it's been a great interview. So thanks for coming on. Dan, thanks for having me on. Can I just say, we think you do a wonderful job. And in many ways, listening to you and former managers, former players, just enthuses people about how could it, how good it could be, how good it was, and how good it could be. You do a great job, so just keep doing it. So I hope you enjoyed that. I thought there were some really cracking stories there from Steve and uh, hopefully you, um, you enjoyed it as much as me. Hoping to do another couple of specials as well before I sort of try and bark on, on putting together a full series again. We have got a, uh, a live event coming up on the Sunday the 25th of June. So that is at Haxby Sports Bar. It's part of sort of mini live podcast with Dave Flett, who was a very popular guest when we had him on in back all the way back in series one. And um, also a, a kind of York City quiz night. So a few sort of prizes. Yeah, it's just a chance to sort of get the York City community together in this sort of weird time for football fans sort of at the end of the season and before pre-season starts. So I thought it'd be good to put some on. And um, also because we get so many listeners up and down the UK, across the world really, um, I thought it'd be good to try and make it um, available to those people as well so we, we're doing it we're going to attempt to sort of zoom it out at the same time so this is all uh, free to, to kind of um, to take part in yes we are a charity and yes if people want to donate things on the night then, then that's absolutely fine but there'll be no obligation to uh, so if you do want to take part on, on Zoom or in person then just sort of head to Eventbrite and the tickets are on there so tickets are free but it's just to sort of so we've got to know what sort of numbers to cater for And, uh, and just finally, I'd just like to dedicate this episode to Paul Firth. Paul is someone I went to primary school with, who I've kind of kept in touch with over the years. He's recovering from major surgery, and uh, he's a massive, massive York City fan and a Spurs fan, so he's obviously had it tough anyway, uh, let alone having to go through uh, what he's had to go through recently. So this is dedicated to Paul. He's an absolute diamond of a, of a person, and uh, you know we're thinking of you, Paul, in, in your recovery, and uh, hopefully this podcast has helped cure a little bit of your boredom, and, uh, and hopefully you enjoy having a bit of a shower out to you so uh, yeah this episode is for Paul